0: Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS-9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work, and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. ( cryst) This is Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 refresh and hopefully less fan-biased eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 6, Melora. Scott, can you tell us about this episode?
1: Nothing I'd rather do. So Melora is the first Elysian to join Starfleet. Based on where she was born, the gravity is different than what we are used to. And she can't travel deep space nine without gravity accommodation, which does not exist on that station. So in order for her to exist in the gravity that is in deep space nine, based on her abilities to move around, Bashir and O'Brien design a wheelchair for her who is insistent on doing everything for herself. She can do all of this. She can get around. She can do what she needs. Her her disability, and it, even if it is a disability, does not define her. In fact, despite of it, she does what she needs to do. And she's smart, and she's cultured, and she's dope. Quark is making a deal when a when a character, Valid Cat, comes in. Been in jail for a minute possibly because of Quark. Quark is nervous and is showering him with compliments and lots of stuff. He's going to kill Quark. (laughs) Malara is used to being left out of conversations. She's used to feeling like she's left out of conversations. She feels like because of her issues and her challenges, people are always talking behind her back or giving her things that she doesn't feel she needs when she joins the the team for a runabout usage melora is angry she's feeling infantilized she doesn't understand why she's being asked to work with dax she prefers to work alone she doesn't know why why bashir is there she's a doctor why is she, why is he even involved in talking about her but dax is going they're going to the, they're going to the gamma quadrant and they're going much to Malara's chagrin. Bashir and Malara talk. Julian decides to no longer be her doctor, but they have a flirt attack where Bashir says all the defenses and the nastinesses is is on purpose. She is impressed and goes to dinner with Dr. Bashir, who is back to being Dr. Horny. Quark is buttering up Cot because he does not want to die. Bashir and Malora have a date and they're at a Klingon stall and how we talk about the juxtaposition of replications and non-replications in this world they're at a Klingon restaurant where they do authentic Klingon food and he tries to order the order he's like doing that like I know foreign food let me order you the shit and they and the Klingon brings the stuff and she's like this is not real Klingon food Give me the real shit, man. And, and the Klingon's <laughs> like, hell fucking yeah. Uh, let me give you the real shit. I love that. And they're like, both like, we're smart and we have taste. And, you know, it's just a funny scene. And and Bashir tells a story that we think is about him realizing he wants to be a doctor, but it's a non sequitur. And he talks about how he wanted to be a tennis player and then fell into medicine. And then, uh Malara talks about ableist issues of space, and they have a moment, but nothing happens. And then she tries to go do some shit on her own for the ship, but she has an incident. And uh, then she brings Bashir to her room where she can press a button, and they're put in an anti-gravity vibe, because that's where she can really fully um, move around and ambulate from her world. So they have this uh, anti-gravity kiss. They kiss an anti-gravity, uh, you know, in fun, it's fun times. And they go to another scene, and Melora and Dax are in space, and they talk about love in space and distant relationships and how to have these sort of things. And then we see Quark talking to Odo because he's like, "I don't want to die." And Quark's like, and Odo's like, oh, that would suck if you died. Not, but I'll see what I can do. And then Bashir, being very Bashir, who's a brilliant man but a hubristic man, thinks that he can actually fix the gravity issues, which would also make him a well-known doctor. And uh, in between that, Odo runs into Cotton. He's like, please don't kill Quark, man. Um, and Dr. Bashir develops this method where Malora can start walking for longer and longer, except she can't do the flying thing, or Bashir doesn't want her to, because it might mess with her her nervous system and her equilibrium and confusion. And Malora's starting to realize that on some little mermaid shit that. Maybe what she want, thinks she wanted takes away who she is, and that her challenges and her body is part of her identity, which like can go to people who consider themselves lowercase deaf versus uppercase deaf. And though so, so uppercase deaf people would ar- argue that deafness isn't a disability. And I'm not even suggesting that her challenges are disabilities. It's just part of her body. Um, And she's like, not sure that she wants to go through with the treatment, you know? But the treatment has been proven fruitful, and Bashir will get cred for it. And as all this is happening, Kot takes over the ship with uh, Quark and uh, Dax and Melora and. They're in like a hostage situation, and Malora saves the day because Dax drops the gravity, and Malora does like a gravity fighting thing and stops everything. And as we end the episode, Malora is done with the treatments. Her gravity is part of who she is. She she doesn't want to be anything other than who she is, and she's fine with that. And As this happens, Klingon opera is played in the background by the man who made the (laughs) the food. Hands are held, and we are left out of this episode.
0: So, disability in Trek. I haven't seen this before, but if I think about the production design of Trek, it doesn't have people with disabilities in mind. But then again, I think the assumption was, in the future, you may have medical answers for every disability or perhaps some bionic answers.
1: Mostly. Have you seen Star Trek for the movie, The Voyage Home? Yes. So you remember that scene where where they're at a hospital and uh, Bones is talking about how barbaric medicine was in the 20th century and is able to give a, a woman a pill that cures her need for dialysis, which which, you know, with revealing some stuff about myself you know i was always moved by by that scene because my father passed away from complications of kidney renal failure and even now he passed away when i was 16 i'm 39 do the math and he was he was the person that instilled my love of trek and he loved that movie and even now uh the tech for kidney renal failure has changed so much that who knows the life that he could have lived now. So the idea that there's a pill one day that could take care of this and they're talking about the 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 troubling nature of chemotherapy in that movie in the 80s and and I, and I work in a hospital and I obviously can't say too much shit but like chemo is still very invasive, you know? And so yeah, the idea if we're no longer looking at health and health revolution as a form of capital and a form of profit, then we can really make a lot of advancements. So you don't see a lot of wheelchairs because most, uh, most modern maladies, with some with some exceptions and ones that we'll see, um, have been fixed by science. So when this this character is having a very nineteen hundreds, two thousands experience of disability, of accessibility, and talking like, oh, like these stairs and shit like that, it's like, wow, we this is not what we're expected because science, medicine, and tech have really made it that you might someone that wouldn't have lived four years in nineteen ninety two would have a fighting chance
0: which speaks to how unfamiliar everyone is to Melora. But what's interesting is how an alien gains a disability living in a different environment. It's like the reverse of Superman.
1: Right, but it's also sort of like science factual because it makes sense that certain aliens based on certain gravities would have these issues and that it's, this isn't even an issue in many places where malara is it's just that deep space 9 is cardassian tech and cardassia is sort of the kind of culture where they might not try to help people with disabilities they might throw this, they might throw the developmentally disabled kids over the hills like they used to do in the world i hate trigger warning i hate to say that but that is those are things that used to happen so this episode really inspired me even though it's like not a good episode (laughs) yeah this episode when we were discussing behind the scenes i was like this episode is a really good um opportunity for discussion but to use yours words was a clunker of an episode in many ways
0: i completely agree with that a note to our listeners if you love the southpaw project please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on patreon this will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of southpaw deep space nine our fictional narrative podcast fighters brew break free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now bonus articles fighters brew transcripts with extra content liberation martial arts online as well as our private chat group on discord you can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at salpawpod.com. To the points about real-life analogies, I have a lot of that. Because first off the bat, what I thought about is the analogy of how a lot of immigrants feel when they come to the West. They're made to feel backward, less than. It's the world not designed for them. And so this comparison of an alien to a disability, I don't know if the writers were aware of it, but there is a lot of overlap. Somebody who came here from another country, if they hear a neurodivergent person speaking about their experiences or somebody who's LGBTQ or they have limited hearing, all those things are like not one for one, but there is some overlap because you're treated as if, when you come here, you're not intelligent. They start yelling at you and you realize a lot of things aren't designed for somebody like you or for someone like you to navigate.
1: And just also the way that we talk about uh, disability culture and illness culture and victim culture. And I, I worked with adults with disabilities for 10, 15 years of my life and, and worked and worked with uh, self advocacy groups and giving people agency to to decide how they had their dignity and how they wanted to walk and how they wanted to talk and how they wanted to be perceived was big and you know it's very interesting because uh i've always i've been very moved by susan sontag's illness as a metaphor because I just feel like I mean, it's only 86 pages. So I really recommend everybody, especially if you're interested in the language of victim blaming and illness and how this, and it's easily, um, it's easily, you can relate it to all the things that we're talking about. But she uses like tuberculosis and other ways how people would use people's illness as a metaphor for power and for subjugation. And do I, do I know that the writers were reading Susan Sontag when they were writing this episode? Probably not, because I, they get a lot of this stuff wrong in my opinion but but they're trying, and they're bringing up facts that I think are important for people to have. And I thought it was a really good pushing of Julian Bashir. I like complex Bashir I like uh I like when. He's not just being a, a selfish, I mean, he's a little selfish, it's a little weird that he's always trying to sleep with the women that he's helping, but he's growing.
0: People don't know, but Karl Marx also had a chronic illness and chronic pain that was debilitating, and that influenced a lot of his writing.
1: I mean, I mean, how can it not? I, have, I am always in physical pain. I don't talk about it a lot, but I, I had... I had a rare type of scoliosis as a kid and I had some labral tears from a few years ago. So on a scale from one to ten, I am never less than a two. So it definitely informs me, but it is also I know better than to talk about it all the time. I know the language, I know the tells, I know the words that are used. And I'm not saying poor me, poor me. because um, you shouldn't feel bad for me. I'm I'm living a life that I'm that, that is very fulfilling and I'm proud of and brings me joy. I'm just saying that all of it is going to inform you. And when you find out characters and writers are going through tremendous pain, but are also like hesitant to talk about it because, the, because of the infantilization, um, it becomes an issue. Even, even the other day when I was doing jujitsu with somebody, I'm six foot one. I'm 215 pounds. I'm a blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm not like amazing, but I'm fine. And I was working with someone who is very small, very nice. She's a comrade, and I was like, "Hey, you don't have to worry. Like, like you can go hard, but I'm, I'm gonna be all right." And then I was like, "You know what? Let me shut up because, like, am I infantilizing right now?" And she was like, "You're not, but I'm really glad you're thinking about that. So thank you." Um. So. Like not infantilizing people and being mindful of the complexities of people and people that do or do not have disabilities because I don't think Malera would say that she had disabilities. She had challenges that were part of her identity,
0: I think. Now, what was so common in the 90s and really still is today is what's known in literature as the reverse victim. Let's take a form of discrimination and reverse it. The militant, angry black person lashing out at everyone who then learns to play nice after a lecture was a common trope I grew up with. This is a version of that as well. There's also a bit of the worthy victim. Melora has to be twice as tough and smart as everyone else to be worthy of empathy from the viewer.
1: Yeah, right. The worthy poor, the worthy disabled, the worth. yeah.
0: And this is where the writers are operating from. But there's also commentary about white supremacist architecture, to your point. The station is built for big, strong white men. To give an example, my wife recently took my kid to a local park with a giant pond and a fountain. It also has boats that you pedal. My wife isn't short, but she had a hard time reaching the pedals. This boat was made for tall men. This is in quote-unquote diverse and progressive Los Angeles in a progressive part of the city. I've seen women stranded out there, not because they're not strong enough to pedal. They just couldn't reach it. So the world is invisibly designed like that. Even things like temperature in an office, not to mention medical and psychological studies, they're rooted in mostly white male participants.
1: And I'm, I'm sure I've talked about this and I know I'll talk about it again because Cardassian architecture and engineering definitely reminds me of brutalism where it's like deliberately brutal. And it's like an architecture that is meant to oppress.
0: No wonder so many people don't feel comfortable at a lot of gyms, right? I get it. You're supposed to go there to try to improve yourself, but then the design, to your point, is brutal. Facts. Now to a point you were alluding to earlier, Melora is actually similar to real life humans going to space, dealing with different gravity. Something astronauts deal with a lot is atrophy and loss of bone density. Melora has the opposite of those problems. Someone from space coming to earth, quote unquote, or earth's gravity. But it's wild and trick how you have humans in space who've never been in zero gravity. Julian said he's never flown in zero gravity before. So that might sound cool, but from my analysis, critical theory, whose gravity are Trek ships and bases set to? We can't blame this all on Cardassians. What temperature is it set to? It raises a lot of questions how a lot of these problems can still exist in a fictional future because writers still work from a set of default assumptions. These writing rooms are... Dominated by men and probably female writers are like, this isn't always the most comfortable situation, but they're not thinking that. They're like, you're just uncomfortable with the normal. But what's normal is what's normal for you, right? So who gets to decide? Going back to something we talked about in the previous episode about Cardassians, it's about standpoint theory. Whose working definition of truth are we working from? Whose definition of normal are we operating from? And something you were talking a lot about is the question of curing who you are. But I feel like the episode itself didn't linger with that question for too long because then they basically tell us exposition alert, right? Something you always talk about. They tell us it's the little mermaid story in space. It's not just an allegory. They literally just tell you that. Then immediately after they tell you that, they're in the sea with zero gravity and Melora saves the day because she knows how to swim. In zero gravity, a little too on the nose.
1: A little too on the nose.
0: The logic of the final conversation between Melora and Julian was also confusing for me. I don't have a problem with the decision, right? From a vacuum, everything you said is true about hearing who you are philosophically. I get where they're coming from. But my problem is how it was brought up. She was like, how did I survive the phaser shot? And it's because of the treatments. Oh, that's what I thought which is why I won't continue with the treatments. (laughs) So the treatments is why you're alive. That's why I'm not going to do it anymore. I mean, yes, get us to why you're not going to do it. But (sighs) that is a strange conversation to have to get you to that point. The way that conversation was written didn't work for me. It really takes away from her decision. It's what they'd call in pro wrestling, a weak finish. Yes. Also, it's not really a one-for-one analogy to the Little Mermaid in that, just because you're now stronger doesn't mean you can't go back to a lower gravity, nor does it mean you're a new species. You can make commentary about why should I have to conform to this world and have that argument and challenge the system rather than individualize the problem just like the villain in the Dax episode did. Julian's solution was similar to the solution we saw with Verad, except he didn't force it. Nonetheless, it was a liberal individual solution. It was also about gatekeeping again, that the Federation is only for people who come from places with a certain type of gravity or temperature or size, but that wasn't really addressed. And it was shoehorned into a little mermaid allegory that ended as a lady in the tramp scene. And hey, we'll go with it. But Scott, tell us a little bit more about what you thought about this episode. So the acting,
1: I really liked. The commentary was weak, but it allowed us to have great commentary. So for that, it gets some points. Uh whenever there's Klingon singing, Klingon opera, it makes me really happy. The coda of the last scene worked for me. But yeah, as an episode, I agree with you it was a clunker. Um that was that was developed to try out some stories and develop some characters. Like I guess it was a Bashir episode and we do want to get to know more about Bashir because as, as he's been presented, he's a little vapid, vacuous and and shallow, and to see him in Cardassians have this like come on, flirtatious relationship with Garrick, which I think would have been dealt with more openly if the show were made now and just seeing more development from Bashir was nice, but as but as an overall episode, it's like it's like a two, two point five. It's just not, eh.
0: Now, Scott. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about the next episode?
1: I will think about it. I, I want to be a little greedy because um, the next episode is rules of acquisition. So you know, oh. there's going to be. Uh, <laughs> A Ferengi sort of vibe, and and since I, my first visit was to talk about Ferengi
0: and their rules, and you read the book, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it, it was like a it was like a book you could get at Barnes and Nobles for like ten bucks back in the day. It's just like a list of things. I I could send you a PDF.
0: Young people are like bookstore. What is that? What are you talking about?
1: Oh, they're coming back. <laughs> Bookstores are great. Until then. Yes.